Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 43, A Crusading We Will Go. Before we begin, allow me to make a little announcement. Soon we'll be reaching episode 50. Well, we've actually done more than 50 episodes if you consider the extras and that. But, anyway. I was thinking of celebrating the occasion by doing a little bit of fundraising. In particular... I'm going to be doing a mega recap episode of everything that we've done so far. And that episode will be on sale. So if you'd like to help support the program and keep us going and get a hold of the mega recap episode from the fall of the Roman Empire to the end of the 11th century, please make a donation on PayPal of the amount of your choice. I'll talk more specifically about it at the end of the episode. Last time... We left Pope Urban II, feeling rather smug. He and his ally, the Countess Matilda of Canossa, had scored some major points against Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV by enticing his son, Conrad, into switching to their side. They had done this with the promise of the crown of Italy, then the imperial crown, and finally a wife. All of these things ended up not living up to expectations. Young Conrad ended up not making his mark on history at all, but dying in bitterness. Now, Urban II was also starting to show his political ability in dealing with the emperor by taking things to a whole different level. Indeed, until that point, the popes had been very much concentrated on the Italian level and its interaction with the Holy Roman Empire. However, there were places beyond those, France, for example, and England. Now, Urban was a strong believer in the reform and very much opposed to the evils of the church of the day, such as simony, the buying and selling of church offices, and the wealth that came with it, and lay investiture, which meant that nobles and not the clergy were deciding who would be a bishop. At the same time, he remembered very well that Gregory VII's hard-line approach hadn't really won out in the end. So, Urban took a lighter, more tolerant approach, issuing a series of dispensations. That was sort of like saying, well, you've been naughty, And you shouldn't really have gotten what you got, but that's okay, just don't do it again. This approach won back to the papal camp many clergymen who had gone over to the emperor's side. After all, as they say, you can catch a lot more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Or was it wasps that you can catch? And was it honey or was it like tea or something like that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Urban II was able to succeed where Gregory VII had failed. His big, big achievement came in 1095. 
Everything kicked off in a council in Piacenza in that year. At the council, there were delegates from the Eastern Roman Emperor, Alexios, who asked for help to free the Holy Land from the Muslims. This was not the first time that a request had been made, but now the time was ripe, and Urban jumped at the chance. As well as being a decent politician, the Pope must have had a knack for organization and a flair for show. The main stage was set for the 27th of November in Clermont-Ferrand in France. The clergy who had been invited were asked to bring as many nobles as they could muster. The cathedral of the city was too small for the expected crowd, so a platform was erected in a field. The stage was set for a concert, and Urban II was the rock star. There is a bit of an issue reconstructing exactly what the Pope said, because there are five different versions of it, and they're all different, and some of the chroniclers weren't even there. We'll take as an example the version of Robert of Reims. From the confines of Jerusalem, from the city of Constantinople, a grievous report has gone forth, namely, that a race from the kingdom of the Persians, an accursed race, a race wholly alienated from God, has violently invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by pillage and fire. They have either destroyed the churches of God or appropriated them for the rights of their own religion. They destroyed the altars after having defiled them with their uncleanness. The kingdom of the Greeks is now dismembered by them and has been deprived of its territory. On whom, therefore, rests the labor of avenging these wrongs and of recovering this territory, if not upon you, you, upon whom, above all other nations, God has confirmed remarkable glory in arms, great courage, bodily activity, and strength to humble the heads of those who resist you. In short, the message was, the East is in trouble, and if you don't go and free it, then you're going to be giant wimps. And if you do, you'll go to heaven, and by the way, you can keep the lands that you conquer, which are flowing with milk and honey. When the Pope had finished, the assembled crowd hailed him with a Deus volt, God wills it. That was exactly what Urban wanted. This whole thing was not his idea, not his doing, it was God's. Whatever he had said, what people got out of it was that a great evil had come over the Holy Land. But was that true? Well, not really. It was true that things had changed in the Holy Land. Until the year 1071, Jerusalem in particular had been under the control of the Arab Muslims, who had considered it an open city, 
and allowed pilgrims access to the holy site with a certain degree of tolerance. Then, in 1071, the Seljuk Turks had taken over. They were more recent converts to Islam, and therefore, as is the case with more recent converts, they brought a certain amount of extremism to it, although not quite at the level of Western propaganda. It didn't really matter how true the persecutions against the Christians were in any case. Everyone in the West was by now too fired up. Plus, there were other, perhaps more compelling reasons for the Crusades to be interesting. First of all, there was the question of blocking further Muslim expansion. Granted, it had slowed down greatly after the initial seemingly unstoppable start but the Muslims were still pushing at the borders of Europe, and, if Constantinople fell, they would soon be in the Balkans. Then there was the issue of the Eastern Christian Church, those naughty schismatic or schismatics. If it were to be the Western Church to free the Holy Land, those Eastern punks would have looked like fools, I tell you. Thirdly, there was an issue that noble families had all the time, i.e. the second and third sons of noble families. Now, usually, you'd sort out little Heinrich or Giovanni by getting him a nice bishopric or something. But not all the noble sons wanted to be part of the clergy, even if you could still do more or less what you wanted. Maybe they wanted to go around on horses, hacking at things with swords. And maybe... One of the things they wanted to hack were older brothers that stood in the way of inheritance. Now, there was the greatest possible adventure available, and the prize was new lands, booty, glory, and eternal salvation, as promised by the Pope. What more could they wish for? Finally, there were other subjects who were very much interested in the venture, and those were a few little cities by the name of Genoa, Pisa, Amalfi, and Venice. They had gone a long way to reaching independence with considerable fleets, and we definitely need to and will catch up with them. For now, they are loving the idea of extending their influence over the eastern Mediterranean, and why not make a bit of cash giving boat rides to crusading nobles? So, now would be the time to talk about the First Crusade. And we will. But, we won't spend too much time on it. My well-informed and cultured listeners will probably already know about it anyway. If you want to look into it, or better listen into it, there is actually a History of the Crusades podcast by Sharon Eastor, so if you want to look that up. We'll just concentrate on the entertaining and Italian-related bits. First of all, the great enthusiasm whipped up got some people so excited that they decided to head off on their own without any preparation or planning. I find that the most interesting part of what came to be known as the Peasants' Crusade 
was when they arrived at a great city and rejoiced, thinking it was Constantinople and that their trip was almost over. In truth, it was Prague. When the participants in the improvised crusade found this out, they were very unhappy and started rampaging around the city, which closed them out. So they rampaged around the countryside. In the end, they made it to Constantinople, at least some of them did, and were hastily sent across the Bosporus River by Emperor Alexios, so they could continue south to be almost completely annihilated by the Turks. Meanwhile, the real expeditionary force was ready. The Pope wanted to make sure that everyone remembered that the Crusade was a church thing, so the official leader was Bishop Adamir of Lepuy. But, since he was a man of the cloth, and despite his martial prowess, military leaders were needed. Perhaps the most important leaders were Godfrey of Bouillon, Raymond of Toulouse, and the two Italian Hauteville Norman boys, Bohemond and Tancred. Now, the fact that two Normans, who had just recently been waging war on the western territories of the Byzantine Empire, were headed to Constantinople with a huge army of very excited knights, was not really brilliant news for Emperor Alexios. He was wise to be suspicious, because the Normans were actually very seriously thinking of taking Constantinople before heading down to the Holy Land. In the end, diplomacy won out, and it was a much more relaxed and more sincerely enthusiastic crowd that saw off the Crusaders at the start of 1097. As is often the case, it was not so much the Crusaders' great military skill which saw them triumph in their first engagement, but divisions on the Muslim side. Indeed, the Arab population in Armenia rebelled against the Seljuk Turks and sided with the Westerners. It was here that the first Western principality was set up by Baldwin, brother of Godfrey, who made himself king. Next, it was to the city of Antioch, where the Crusaders laid siege. They eventually won out, just in time thanks to two apparent miracles. The first was that the garrison inside the city decided to surrender, despite the fact that a large Turkish army was coming to relieve them. The other was the finding of the Holy Lance. Now the whole business of the Holy Lance has taken up films and books and so on. We're just going to quickly go over the story of Bartholomew of Marseille. It was he who had first claimed that the lance that had been found was the one that had been used to pierce the side of Jesus Christ to end his suffering on the cross. But after the fall of Antioch, people started to have some doubts. Bartholomew was so sure of his discovery that he offered to go through the test of fire to prove himself. That he did and when he walked through the fire unscathed like some Khaleesi, there was great rejoicing. Unfortunately, he was found dead as a post the following morning. I'm not sure what that meant in the end for the authenticity of the great relic.
Antioch, one of the most important seas of early Christianity, was assigned to Bohemond of Taranto. Once again, after the fall of the Roman Empire, a sort of Italian was once again in charge of a bit of the Holy Land. Bohemond had gone from a potential squabble with his family over parts of southern Italy to being king of one of the crusading kingdoms. Not too shabby at all. In any case, the crusaders made it to Jerusalem. When they got there, they found that the previous year the city had changed hands once again and was once more under Arab rather than Seljuk Turk control. The Arabs had not opposed the crusaders so far and were more than happy to open up negotiations. There were only around a thousand of them defending the walls and the crusaders had started out at around 30,000. The westerners, known from then on as Franks to the Arabs, were having none of it. They hadn't come all of this way to see everything end in a ridiculous negotiation. They wanted blood and glory. In their piety, devotion to God and love of Jesus, the crusaders massacred the inhabitants of the city by the thousands, with body parts strewn along the streets and blood flowing. Even the Jews, who, after all, in their eyes were infidels and killers of the Saviour, were not spared and were roasted alive in their synagogue. After this orgy of holy, righteous massacring of the innocent, the crusaders all knelt down for a good prey. We'll leave their story there, although a lot could be said about it. The consequences back in Italy were considerable. For the maritime cities of Genoa and Venice in particular, the Mediterranean had opened up. This new dominance would, for a time, keep the money rolling in, inundating the cities. They were rolling in it. From an Italian point of view, the sea could once again be called Mare Nostrum, our sea, as the Romans had done. We're very close to the time in which we will talk about the maritime republics and the communes. There were also consequences for the feudal system in general. The nobles, who had made up the bulk of the Crusades, had sold off lands and made debts with a growing class of merchants and bankers, whose power increased considerably. Nowhere more than in Italy were these changes evident. It was almost the death knell of feudalism in the peninsula, considering that feudalism never caught on as much as it had elsewhere. Furthermore, to encourage their vassals to come on the Crusades, the great landowners had assigned the vassals the lands that they held in the name of their overlord, thus further breaking up the great feudal holdings. Jerusalem had fallen to the Crusaders on the 15th of July, 1099, when news got back to Rome, Pope Urban II had already died. Next time, we'll wrap up a few things, Henry IV, Matilda, and the investiture controversy. After that, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, we're going to do a bit of looking back. 
there will be a regular recap episode, the third so far reviewing episodes 28 to 44. I would also like to do an episode on our good Countess Matilda, who really deserves her own episode, and perhaps, since we have seen the end of both the Byzantines and the Arabs in Italy, one each for them. In all of this, we'll have the mega recap fundraising episode you can purchase via a PayPal donation of the amount of your choice. For which I thank you very, very much. In general, I thank everyone very much for listening. In particular, my Patreon donors, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Sean and Jeff, the Matilde di Canossa and Mazzini level Benjamin, and Roberta, who has moved up, thank you very much, Roberta, the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben, Dean, Ignazio, and Silane, and the top level, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri, Sen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the new donor, W.R. Lin Liu, and to Ed Worthington. Welcome aboard, everybody. Remember, you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com via email, or on Twitter, A History of Italy, or on Facebook at the same name. You can visit our website, www.ahistoryofitaly.com, to look at some interesting maps and timelines to help you navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thank you very much again for listening, and arrivederci. Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.